on one another civil war. Some people, however, seem to think a new one is inevitable. Frankly, we might already be in a new civil war, the way things seem sometimes. I don't want to take that lightly. Let's just say I would like to do whatever I can in my small corner of the universe to try to stave one off. Hopefully this podcast will be a platform where people who think differently from one another can engage, where reason and logic can prevail and lead to better outcomes than might be obtained by name calling and insulting and shouting. Uh, One thing that also helps, frankly, is to travel a little bit outside of the bubble that you may live in. I had the chance to do that recently when I went to Alabama. I was really lucky enough to be able to go there with my mom, who's a native of Mississippi. This trip to Alabama was her first trip back to the South since she left in the 1950s. And we were invited by my next guest, who is Representative Anthony Daniels of Alabama. Uh, Representative Daniels had organized a nonpartisan get out the vote effort in which I participated. And I also must tell you, friends, that Representative Daniels does me a great honor by being on the show. He is the House Minority Leader in the Alabama legislature. He is also the first African-American and the youngest person ever to hold that position. And on top of all that, he is a great host to a great state. Welcome, Representative Daniels. Thank you for joining the program. Oh, no, thank you, Tony. I certainly appreciate it. It's an honor. So let me just cut right to the chase. You're a politician, you're a policymaker. Do you think that sometimes politicians find it easier to fight with one another than simply to work? Absolutely. I think that that's the easy thing to do. You know, for politicians, um, especially when you're in the midst of the campaign, uh, new politicians especially, they're unable to turn off the campaign mode and it spills into uh, governing. And so it makes it extremely difficult to really move policy forward. So it takes a little time. So how did you make that transition? Because you won, you're a Democrat, but you won a district that I think is a predominantly white district, if I'm correct, and also was previously a Republican district. Yeah, it's a pretty close district uh, demographically, especially voting pattern wise. But for me, I kind of went into politics a little bit different. Uh, I was fortunate enough not to have a primary. The field was cleared for me in the primary. And so I was able to go in running sort of more in the middle, being very moderate. And so, you know, getting into the legislature, I remember the first couple of weeks I was really torn by how the two sides were going after each other at the microphone, but then I would see them hanging out together afterwards. And so that kind of got me to understanding that it was sort of like professional wrestling. Uh, Really, (laughs) what you saw was not real. It was just the theatrics of it all, putting on a show for those that are watching. But understand at the end of the day, it's about relationships. But do you think that people are well served by that, that that gives them sort of a a bad sense of the dysfunction that's permissible? No, I think at the end of the day, it does serve a purpose. And the purpose that I see, especially in a state house, many of them, as long as I've been in office, was running against Obama, although they had nothing to do (laughs) uh, with federal politics. What ended up happening was 
they had to continue those theatrics going into the election to make certain that their base didn't feel that they were giving in to the liberals. I'm speaking with Representative Anthony Daniels, House Minority Leader in Alabama. Representative Daniels is explaining that while it's true that politics can sometimes resemble a wrestling match, those theatrics may serve a purpose. Well, you know, a lot of that theatrics is necessary to a certain extent. Uh, I think that when it gets into issues that are very touchy issues, whether it's Confederate monument or abortion, those are very ultra-partisan issues. And so they kind of push those issues to the forefront, knowing that those issues are not what we should be working on. But it gives them an opportunity to really work on the real issues behind the scenes that their constituents may not be in support of 100% because they'll feel like they're giving in. So they play for the base for a little while, and then uh, we kind of focus on really getting things done. So you're saying that keeping the hot button issues out in the forefront gives them cover to make compromises behind the scenes. Well, and individuals that are interested in running for higher office, because the Republican primary is the general election in many instances. And so in order to appeal to a base, uh, whether it's evangelical or whether it's right wingers, they can kind of control the primaries. Therefore, a person that maybe appear to be moderate on the surface would play to those uh, extreme issues in order to get the headlines that they need to give them the advantage to running for a higher office in the future. It's part of their branding effort, frankly, is what you're saying. Absolutely. It's their branding Absolutely. effort. People sometimes assume that Alabama is a deep, deep red state. But you've told me that the political diversity that we see reflected in America generally is also reflected there in Alabama. And frankly, during my trip down there with Baum recently, I saw that, that Alabama was more politically diverse than people might assume. Tell us about that. Why does it seem that it's so one-sided toward you know one party when in fact there seems to be a lot of diversity in a lot of areas behind the scenes? Well, one thing in particular that really stands out is gerrymandering. Gerrymandering in Alabama has really given the more conservative party Republicans the advantage. Gerrymandering, for those of you who may not be familiar with the term, is when you draw political boundaries in such a way as to confer an advantage on one party or group. Before 2010, Democrats controlled both houses, the House and the Senate. It was the backlash from the health care law and Obama, you know, dog whistling, which kind of had given the Republicans an advantage because of the turnout being so high. They were able to wipe a lot of Democrats out. And the party that's in control the 2010 uh, election is the party that redraws the district lines. Can you explain what some of those dog whistles were? Well, they're mostly referring to race without referring to it as direct as possible, using code words to drive the anger to defeat Democrats by associating them and tying them to the black man, basically, without actually saying it and being direct as our current president. And so they were able to use that to excite a base and put in their minds these false narratives that really drove their turnout up because they were using fear, which there's a natural response to turn out and turn out in higher numbers. And so 
Democrats, they got wiped out in 2010. Republicans had a chance to redraw the lines, and they've been using Obama since then. Speaking with Representative Anthony Daniels, House Minority Leader in Alabama, Representative Daniels is explaining how he and his colleagues attempt to get work done in this incredibly charged and divided atmosphere. So, Anthony, given that very divided, very charged, and even to some extent racially charged atmosphere, there's a lot of disagreement, there's a lot of division. How do you get work done in that kind of environment? Well, you know, my focus has always been on the areas where there's common ground and to debate issues where we're far apart. But 90 percent of the time, Democrats and Republicans agree. Give me some examples of some things that you guys have been able to accomplish in the face of what seem to be really tough obstacles. Well, I I will say um, issues that deals with job growth, you know, whether it's attracting industry and providing incentives for industries to move into Alabama or funding for pre-K, giving raises to educators, making certain that, you know, we're putting safeguards in place, even now, uh, criminal justice reform. That's the 90 percent where y'all can get some stuff done. What about the 10 percent? What are the super intractable issues that constitute that other 10 percent? Is it just the obvious guns, abortion and gay, lesbian, transgender rights? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, primarily of the abortion issue. You know, every year or every other year, Republicans introduce some type of anti-abortion legislation that fuels their base. And those are issues where they're striking, uh, you know, differences on how we feel that these issues should be addressed. And then funding uh, in higher education. You know, we believe that there should be equity across the board, whether you're an HBCU or a PWI, and that's predominantly white institutions. Uh, our predominantly white institutions, state institutions are much larger, so they have more capacity to lobby for additional funding. But our historically black college universities oftentimes only have a contract lobbyist. And so the funding difference will show in the budget. And so in many instances, our HBCUs are really not getting the the resources that they need to really become as innovative as they could be or have the potential to become. In K-12, you know, how we deal with educators right now, tenure, you know, tenure is being impacted. That means that uh, in Alabama, a teacher that teaches in a system three years will be granted tenure. And tenure means that you can't terminate them without cause. And so it just gives them due process. You know, those are some of the differences. Republicans feel that, you know, no one job should be safe. And Democrats feel that following the tenure laws are the best thing. And I think that for me, I kind of fall in the middle of that issue because I believe more about outcomes. Because being a former teacher, I believe that measuring a student or a class based upon test scores is not the best indicator to determine whether a person should be paid more or, you know, keep their job. Because in Title I schools, you can't pick the kids that come to those schools. And so I agree that there should be more outcome-based, but not a one-size-fits-all approach. And so I'm somewhere in the middle of, of the two. 
I'm talking to Anthony Daniels, Alabama House Minority Leader, also recognized as a leading voice on issues of college access and affordability. So Anthony, a lot of people don't have access and it's not affordable. If you look at the situation (laughs) right now, because everybody says, well, if we raise taxes here, we can use the money to pay for everybody to go to college. If we cut taxes and all that's going to trickle down and everybody's going to pay for their local schools, like all of this pie in the sky stuff is not getting kids educated who are in classrooms right now and who are getting ready to walk into those classrooms. So what can we do to do better by our kids who are just not learning enough and not getting enough access to useful information that's going to put them in a position to be able to take care of themselves. I think that there's a perfect model in California. I visited Oakland High School maybe a month ago. What I observed there is is sort of innovation in my eyes where they have pathways. And, you know, you may have a student that goes through a public health pathway or a restorative and social justice pathway or an arts pathway. And those pathways are based upon the student's interests going into their freshman year. And so you're putting them on a track to where they actually get internships and you're teaching them life, community and college and career readiness. They can leave high school with, you know, um, an associate's degree. They can go in and do some type of technical training, but you're putting them on a path to success based upon their interests. And so I've seen that program and that program, um, from my understanding, has increased the path from high school to either two-year or four-year institution by 20%. And there are other things on the front end that we have to do to prepare our kids. Like I talked about pre-K being important. Well, it is extremely important in Alabama, but only 32% of the children have access to it. As a former third grade teacher, I can tell you every student in my classroom that went to school before kindergarten based upon their academic and behavior. And so if we know that third grade test scores and academic progress in the third grade is one of the indicators to tell the government how large the prisons need to be, if we're looking at third grade test scores, then starting earlier puts a kid on the path to be successful. Because what we know is every dollar spent in pre-K saves you $7 in corrections. I'm talking to Representative Anthony Daniels, House Minority Leader in Alabama. Representative Daniels is explaining that every dollar spent on pre-K saves $7 on corrections and how allocating public money to educate kids rather than incarcerate them can be more beneficial to everyone in the long run. So how do we generate the sort of political will to make something like that happen? Because right now it doesn't seem realistic because of political division and some of the other things that you've mentioned. People seem far more inclined to spend money building jails than they do Mm -hmm. giving educational resources to young kids. So how do we change the momentum, Rep? Well, if you don't have legislators that have the political skill to negotiate on large items, for example, there is a proposal for a gas tax in Alabama. Well, my goal is to leverage getting some of these programs that I just talked about funded in exchange for a gas tax that could end your political career. Like communities that still continue to have double-digit unemployment rates where their direct correlation there is that their schools are not doing well and the kids are not performing the highest level. 
So I'm willing to lose my job in voting for a tax in exchange for stable support for programs that's going to help put children on the path to success. Representative Daniels, you are the first African-American ever to be House Minority Leader in Alabama. You're also the youngest, and congratulations on that, Mm -hmm. too. You are the leader of the opposition in your state. What is the role of the political opposition? The role of the political opposition is to negotiate things to help my constituents that may not have the voice in the Alabama legislature. My job is to make certain that resources are trickling down to those communities. I had a really extraordinary time in Alabama, from exploring memorials to our civil rights history with my mother, who is a survivor of the Jim Crow South, to my visit with Keith Martin and the Porch Creek Band of Indians, a tribe that really inspires and whose powerful and potent history I was very privileged to learn a little about. And then there's the tailgating at the Magic City Classic, which in my experience is the tailgating to beat all tailgating. Representative Daniels, you and Alabama were very good to me. What issues are important to you, Representative? What's important to me now is getting every Alabamian registered to vote so that they can have their voices heard. Um, Right now, there are about 291,000 unregistered people of color in Alabama eligible to be registered to vote. And then there are another 400,000 who have this apathy and doesn't have the trust of their elected official. And so I would say how everyone could help is really with supporting organizations that do voter registration and organizations that focuses a lot on civic engagement and issue advocacy. They're the voices for the voices. And so supporting those type of organizations that are doing tremendous work in the state and helping them continue that. And we will put up a list of those organizations so that people can know how they can vote, uh, where they can register, because we will lose our democracy if people don't show up and fight for it. Thank you, Representative Daniels, for your time. It's always a pleasure, sir. Please give my best to your staff and your family. Thank you. Representative Daniels has some important things to say about compromise and about how and when we choose to do it. I also think that he has some really important things to say about how and when we draw our lines in the sand. We're all going to have those lines and we're going to draw them in different places. A civil society, as opposed to a society racked by civil war, is one where we will have a reasoned and principled debate about those lines. Look, there are some things we'll never figure out, and there are some of us who will never be allies. I think, however, that there are more of us who may find common ground in some unusual places. My trip to Alabama with my mother reminded me that no matter how bad things look, progress is inevitable. When my mother was growing up in Mississippi, African-Americans exercised their rights to participate in society, sometimes only upon pain of death. It was powerful for me to experience with her a different type of Southern society. And the trip reminded me that while there's a lot of work to be done everywhere, it is possible to do it. And we will. I'm 
Tanya Acker, and thanks for listening to The Tanya Acker Show. If you like us, and I hope you do, please subscribe on iTunes. Please also leave us a five-star rating and a review, and maybe I'll even have a chance to read it on the air. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Our editor is Roland Tia. Our composer is Evan Cunningham. And our production assistants are Chris Embry and Rachel Robillard. Our production consultant is Mike Agavino. And we record our program at the Network Studios in Culver City. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. 